Church family, I invite you to open up in God's word to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10 through 22. It's going to be our text for today. In Genesis 28, 10 through 22, title of our message is When Heaven Meets Earth. When Heaven Meets Earth. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10 through 22. I'm going to read from God's word. You follow along. This is the word of God. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold... There was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were descending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Church, there's a problem with the world in which we live. There's a problem with the people who live in this world. What is it? We could list all sorts of problems, right? We could all go around and and probably everyone in here, we could all pick a different problem and we still wouldn't cover all the problems in our world. But what is it? What is the problem? Church, it is that a gulf, a separation has been created, has been made between heaven and earth. What do I mean by this? Do I just mean this? There's a lot of space between here and wherever heaven is. That's that's not what I mean. What I mean is this. We were created by God in the image of God to live in intimate relationship with God, worshiping him and him alone as our God. That's what we were created for. But because of sin, 
Because of sin, because of our rebellion against God, there is now this great chasm, this great gulf between this sinful world and the holiness of heaven. We are separated from God. That is our great problem, which means that our greatest need, church, is for that chasm to be bridged. If our greatest problem is that there is this separation between sinful us and holy God, then our greatest need is for that chasm to be bridged. The human heart longs for this connection with the God who has made us. The human heart longs for relationship with our creator. The human heart, we long for a a little taste of heaven on earth. We know we were made for something more than just what we see and experience right in the here and now with the temporary things of this life problem is we cannot bridge the gap between us and God. We can't do that. We do not have the power to bring heaven down, nor do we have the holiness to ascend to God in heaven. And that's our greatest problem. Sin separates us from God. And here's the thing. If we die in that state of being separated from God, then we will be separated from him forever, which means that instead of experiencing the blessing of fellowship with God, we will experience the horror of the punishment of being separated from him. We will experience his wrath, and rightfully so. That's what our sin deserves. So the question then is, what can be done? Is there any hope? Church, there is. That's the reason that I'm able to get up each morning in a world that's full of problems, with living in a body that's full of problems, knowing that I, I will wake up each day being tempted to sin and, and sometimes falling prey to that sin. But there's hope. There's hope, church. And our hope is that God would bridge the gap. Our only hope is that God would make a way for heaven to meet earth in such a way that sinners are rescued from their sin. And friend, the passage of God's word we have before us today reveals the good news. This good news of hope, this good news that God is willing. Hear this. God is willing to show grace to sinners and bridge the gap that exists between us and him. And when he does, when God makes a way for heaven and earth to meet, what we see is that he gives salvation and he gets all the glory for it. He gives salvation and he gets all the glory. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10 through 22, church teaches us this, that when God bridges the gap between heaven and earth, he gives salvation and receives all the glory. That's our passage today. That's what we learn here in this text. When God bridges the gap between heaven and earth, he gives salvation and he receives all the glory. First, we learn that he gives. We're going to talk about this some today. It's not something that we earn. It's his choice. It's his work. It's a gift. And so it's grace. It's undeserved. We'll talk about that. Second, we're going to see that what does he bring? It's salvation. What is his gift of grace? It is salvation. It's not a cheap gift. It's nothing short of eternal salvation from our sin. Nothing can compare to this gift that God gives us. And then third, notice the certainty here. It's not that he might give salvation. It's not that he could if he wants to, but who knows? Depends on what mood he's in that day. No, there's certainty, and we'll talk about that certainty. It's a guaranteed salvation for those who receive his grace. 
And then fourth, we're going to talk about the result. The result of him having given a guaranteed salvation is his glory. That's the ultimate aim for God bringing salvation is that he would be glorified in our lives forever and ever and ever. As we walk through this text, we'll examine each of those points a little more closely. But first, you've got to look at this context, right? We always have to remember what's going on in a passage. After Adam and Eve sinned, God promised to send a deliverer. And he promised to send that deliverer through Abraham. And he passed the promise from Abraham to Isaac. And then we've seen that the, that the promise is now in the process of getting passed to Jacob. Now, Isaac had two sons. They were twins, remember? And, and Jacob was the twin that was born second. But he's going he's gonna to rule over the older. The, the blessing is going to come through him. So the attention is really getting shifted now in the book of Genesis to this man named Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Now, verse 10 in our passage tells us that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. You see that in verse 10. He left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. Now, Haran, if you look at a, look at a map, Haran is a long way, especially when you didn't have a plane, you didn't have a car. And I don't even think you had roller skates, right? They probably wouldn't have done much work because you'd been in the sand most of the time. It was a long way to travel. So why in the world is Jacob leaving his home in Beersheba to travel to Haran? Two reasons. Number one, his brother wants to kill him. Number two, he needs to find a wife. That's the two reasons. Why is he making this long journey? His brother wants to kill him and he needs a wife. Why does his brother want to kill him? Well, remember, if you're here last week, remember what happened in chapter 27. Jacob just stole the family blessing from his brother Esau by pretending to be him and deceiving their father, Isaac. And now Esau wants revenge. And the revenge he wants is the life of Jacob. He has he has schemed in his heart. I am going to kill my brother. And so I, uh, Jacob is... I think we could we could all say we'd probably do the same thing, trying to put some distance, a good bit of distance between him and his brother until his brother's anger simmers down. And then there's a need for a wife. If Jacob is going to carry on the promised blessing of God, which includes offspring, then he needs a wife. But he doesn't just need any wife. He needs a wife from someone in his family. Both of Jacob's parents trace their lineage back to Haran. That's where their family is from. And so that's where Jacob is heading to, to find a wife. The same area that God, many years earlier, called uh, Jacob's grandfather Abraham to leave, to go to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so here's Jacob. His name means cheater, right? That's what his name means. The one who grabs the heel. That's how he was born. Grabbing his brother's heel. His name means cheater. He's deceived his father. He's stolen from his brother. He's running for his life. Church, the only thing that he seems to have going for him is that right before he leaves, right before he runs out the door, his father said, you're going to be the one to carry on the promised blessing that was given to Abraham and then was given to me. You're going to be the one. That's pretty much all he has going on. But up until this point in his life, we don't have any record of any interaction between him and God. But all that changes during what I believe becomes has to be the most important night in Jacob's life. The night when he witnessed heaven meeting earth. I want to share with you four truths which which arise from this text concerning heaven meeting earth. The first truth is this, church. When heaven meets earth, church, God's grace is on display. 
God's grace is on display. When heaven meets earth, God's grace is on display. The text tells us that Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he takes that stone, he puts it under his head, and he lays down in that place to sleep. So he's been traveling, sun's going down, he finds a rock to use as a pillow and dozes off to sleep. On the run. And he has this dream and it changes his life. In his dream, heaven meets earth. He sees this ladder or another way to translate that is a stairway, the staircase reaching from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth. On this on this stairway, there's angels and they're ascending and descending this staircase, this ladder. Meaning that there's this interaction that's going on between heaven and earth. Heaven is interacting with earth. The holy heaven interacting with the corrupted earth. And then the dream just explodes in glory. Because, I mean, a ladder from heaven to earth is one thing. Angels ascending and descending. Now that's pretty cool. But then it says, behold, the Lord stood there. The Lord is there, the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 13, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, let's pause there for a minute before we even get to what he said. Here is Jacob having just deceived his father and stolen from his brother with the name that means I'm a cheater. The last thing he deserves is a good dream. Would you agree with me? I mean, I mean. He has earned himself a nightmare. That's what he deserves is his head's laid on this rock. The last thing he deserves is a good dream. If he's going to dream then about an interaction between heaven and earth, if he's going to see the Lord who is holy and perfect in all of his ways and thus must pour out his righteous wrath upon sin, if he's going to have a dream where he sees that, then what we should expect and what I think he probably expected as soon as he realized what he was looking at and who he was looking at, the expectation should be for the wrath of God to flow down this staircase and consume him. That's what he deserves. And friends, that's what you and I would deserve. If we stood at the bottom of a staircase that led to the Lord and we saw him in all his glory. That's what Jacob deserves. But what does he hear the Lord say? He hears the Lord speak blessing upon him. It's the opposite. The very opposite of what he deserves. We're going to look more closely at the blessing in a moment, but just to summarize, God passes along the promised blessing to Jacob, the promise that came to Abraham, the promise that came to Isaac, the promise that hint here, spoiler alert, that's ultimately going to lead to Jesus. He gets to be the recipient of that promise. This deceiver, this liar, this cheater. It's the opposite of wrath, and it's the opposite of what Jacob deserved. And so this passage demands, just from the get-go, that we not overlook God's amazing grace. If we overlook God's amazing grace in this passage, church, I believe we've missed, we've missed one of the most amazing truths about our God. And if we ever grow weary, of talking about and learning about and, and, and seeing about the amazing grace of God. Church, we've turned our eyes from the only hope there is to the greatest problem in this world. Because the only hope is the amazing grace of God. 
Jacob in no way deserves to get to experience heaven meeting earth. He should be barred from the presence of God forever. His only interaction with God should be one where God doles out righteous punishment upon Jacob's sin. But church, Jacob has been chosen by God. We've learned that. And God's sovereignty reigns over Jacob's sin. Where sin abound, grace abounds all the more, Paul wrote. And so when we consider what Jacob brings to the table, nothing but his sin. I mean, he's on the run. He doesn't have anything to offer the Lord. We can only describe this blessing of heaven meeting earth as a work of God acting in undeserved kindness towards a sinner. It's grace and it is grace alone. Problem of humanity, we need the gap to be bridged between us and God. Now, if you recall, back in Genesis chapter 11, so we don't want to forget all that we've already learned. Back in Genesis chapter 11, there was this longing in the human heart. And the people on the earth wanted to get to God. They knew that they needed to get to him. But you remember what they did? They got their tools together. They got their ingenuity together. They strapped on their boots and they went to work building a tower. They said, we're going to get to God. We're going to make it. Up to God. What happened as a result? Did they get to God? No. Remember the text that said that God had to look way down on him. They didn't even get close. It said God had to look way down. He had to come way down. And he confused their languages and said, nope, that's not going to work. You can't get to God on your own. Friends, it's impossible for us to work our way to God. We cannot bridge that gap on our own. But praise God, Genesis 11 in the end of the story. Here we see God bridging the gap for Jacob, for a sinner. God making a way. For Jacob to see him and know him and have relationship with him. It's an act of God's grace. Friend, if you're trying to work your way to God today, please stop. Because it's a dead end road. It's not going to lead any. Oh, I shouldn't say a dead end road. It's going to lead somewhere. But it's not to the blessing of God. It's to the wrath of God. Don't try to work your way to him. You can't do it, but don't get discouraged. Take heart. Because God is a God of grace and he's willing to bridge that gap himself, even though we don't deserve it. You just need to admit that you can't get to God and that you don't deserve for God to come down to you. But then receive his grace, receive his willingness to come to you. His undeserved kindness, his gift of love and mercy. When heaven meets earth, God's grace is on display. But what does that grace look like? What comes as a result? Grace means this gift that we don't deserve is given. So what is that gift? Well, that leads us to truth number two. Church, truth number two, when heaven meets earth, God's salvation promises are alive for the whole world. God's salvation promises are alive, church. For the whole world. In verses 13 through 15, God speaks to Jacob. We see God speaking in first, in the first two of those verses, verse 13 and 14, God passes on the promised blessing to Jacob. At the beginning of the chapter, Isaac had passed the blessing to Jacob. We read and studied that last week. But now God is the one who's passing the promised blessing to Jacob. These words should be very familiar to us at this point in the book. But don't let their familiarity lead you to apathy towards them. So you say, oh, I've already heard this. No, no. Because these words are the words of salvation. They are good news. God says, look there in verse 13, I am Yahweh. 
I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We're going to camp out on this for a little bit this morning. And then we'll wrap up with our last two truths. But we want to marinate in this. Okay? This is good news. We see once again that God is preserving His promise to send salvation. This promise has three basic parts. Land, offspring, and blessing that touches all of the earth. Land, offspring, and blessing that touches all of the earth. Now first, I want us to consider this from the perspective of Jacob's immediate situation. Remember, Jacob's on the run. He's running for his life from his brother. And looking for a wife in the process. I mean, what a trip, right? Running for your life and looking for a wife. He's running away out of the promised land. Now, there's a reason for that because he's got to leave to find a wife that belongs to his family. But he's, he's running away from the land that God is promising to give to him. And he has a brother that wants to kill him. The only way God's promises in these verses can be fulfilled is if his brother doesn't kill him. I mean, if his brother kills him, well, there goes the promises. And if he finds a wife from his parents' family, and if he returns safely to this land of promise. In other words, this promise, as Jacob here, lying on this stone, hears this promise from God. His world has been turned upside down. He's on the run, fearing for his life. This promise is a promise of salvation. This is a promise that his journey is going to succeed, that he will find a wife, that he will return back to the land. And through all of that, his brother is not going to kill him. I mean, this would have come as amazing news to Jacob. This was a good dream. This was good news to him. Though Jacob deserved to hear words of condemnation from the Lord as heaven touched earth in this moment, what he heard instead was a message of salvation. He deserved words of condemnation from God, but what he heard instead was a message of salvation. Listen, we deserve to only hear words of condemnation from God. I'm going to say that word right one time today, okay? We deserve to hear words of condemnation. Because we're sinners. But by the grace of God, we can hear a message of salvation from God when heaven meets earth. But this wasn't just about him and his particular situation. We've got to think about this promise from the perspective of the entire Bible. God is promising to send the deliverer that he promised back in Genesis chapter 3 as soon as sin entered the world. And it's going to come from the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob family tree. I mean, this is the hope for the world. Our, our, our hope for everlasting life hinges on that promise from Genesis 3 being fulfilled of a man born of woman coming to destroy the serpent. So in order to flourish as a people, the people from whom the promised one is going to come need a land, which he promises here. And in order to produce the promised deliverer, these people need an offspring, which he promises here. And then he promises, he goes on and says that this deliverer will be a blessing to the whole world. Church, this is a promise to meet our greatest need. This is a promise to bridge the gap. It's a promise for heaven and earth to meet in such a way that sinners are rescued from their sin and put back into a right relationship with God. Salvation. 
Church, this is a promise of Jesus. That's what this is. This is a promise of Jesus. This dream of Jacob where God graciously bridges the gap between heaven and earth. As glorious as it must have been. Seeing the angels ascending and descending this heavenly stairway. Church, this dream was merely a shadow. This This glimpse of heaven meeting earth was merely a shadow of the greatest collision between heaven and earth that the world has ever known. You see, the promised deliverer would actually be God. God would actually, not in a dream, but in flesh and blood, he would actually come to earth. Isaiah, the prophet, prophesied many years after this that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and his name would be Emmanuel, which means, you know what this means? God with us. Heaven meeting earth. And then many years after that prophecy, a baby was born to a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem. And an angel told her, he said, this child, he will be called holy. Who is holy but God? Well, guess what? That's exactly what the angel says. He says, he says, he will be called holy. This child will be called holy, the son of God. And that angel told the man who would be the baby's earthly father to, quote, call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. He's going to be God and he's going to be the promised deliverer. And the apostle John called Jesus the word and said of him, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he goes on and says, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then Jesus connected, Jesus himself connected his coming to earth with Jacob's dream. When he told his disciples, he said this, Jesus told his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. You see what Jesus just did there? He took his disciples who grew up studying Genesis and this passage, and they knew all about Jacob's dream here. He said, truly, truly, I tell you, you'll see the angels descending and ascending. You'll see the heavens open. You'll see that. And they'll be descending and ascending on the Son of Man. In other words, that's all about me. That was a shadow of what you're getting to experience right now as me. The God who created heaven and earth now dwells in flesh and blood before you. It was a shadow. The greatest collision between heaven and earth was yet to come. And it has come. Jesus was saying heaven has met earth. God has come down and I am he. And what did Jesus bring with him? Well, same thing that we see God declaring there in that dream of Jacob. Salvation. That's what Jesus brought with him. He brought the fulfillment of God's salvation promises. He came to bridge the gap between us and God. Now to do that, he had to die. To bridge the gap, he had to die. Because God is holy and he must punish sin. And so he can't leave sin unpunished. If he's going to accept you and me, he has to do something with our sin. And in his grace, what he chose to do was pour his punishment that we deserve out upon his son as his son hung on the cross. There on the cross, Jesus endured God's wrath that we deserve. He took it upon himself. So that God's holiness was vindicated. And his love poured out. 
all at the same time in this great collision between heaven and earth. But of course, Jesus rose from the dead, proving his power over sin and the grave. And now we sinners who can never get to God on our own. We are able to have our sins forgiven. We're able to dwell with God forever and ever and ever. And Jesus is that promise deliverer. Jesus is the promised offspring coming from Jacob. Listen, despite Jacob's sin, the grace of God was on display. It flowed down, revealing the salvation promises of God were still alive. They weren't just alive for Jacob. They weren't just alive for his biological descendants. This promise of salvation was not just for the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob family tree church. Note what God says. And in you, in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That word families is kind of like clans or peoples. All the peoples, all the clans, the various nations and languages of this earth will be blessed through your offspring, through this promised one church, through Jesus Christ. Isaiah also prophesied these words concerning the promise delivered. Not only did he prophesy that he would be born of a virgin and would be Emmanuel, God with us. But Isaiah chapter 49, verse six, God says this. It is too light. That means it's too small. It's, it's, it's not heavy enough. It's not an awesome enough, awesome enough thing. Can I say that? I don't know if that's a word, but we're going to go with it, okay? It, it, it's too, it's too, it's too puny, okay? It's too small. I'm a big God. It's too light a thing. What is too small a thing? That you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Now he's ultimately talking about the promise delivery. He's talking about Jesus. It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up merely the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Jacob's name is eventually going to get changed to Israel. God says that's too small a thing. Not that that's not a good thing, but it's too it's too easy. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Church, the good news that heaven has met earth and brought salvation, that good news is not just for one group of people. That good news is for the entire world, for every man, woman, boy and girl. Listen, throughout his ministry, Jesus crossed cultural and ethnic boundaries. And then before he returned to heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. He said, he said, the spirit, my spirit's going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Church, this is why you and I and anyone in this world can call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Because God's, God's good, gracious gift of salvation is not just for one group of people. It's for everyone in this world who would believe in Jesus Christ. And this is also why we give, while we send, while we go to the nations with the good news of Christ. That would be pointless if the nations couldn't be saved. But it's in God's plan that people from every nation, language and tribe would be rescued. And so that's why mission must be at the heart of who we are. If we're not involved in the peoples of the world, hearing the good news about God, providing salvation for sinners through his collision of heaven and earth and the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we're not if that's what not what our lives are about, then our lives are not aligned with the salvation promises, with the mission of God. We're not walking in step with God because that's what he is about. It's too light a thing that the gospel is going to go to one group of people. I'm going to make the light of salvation reach the ends of the earth. That's what God has been doing and that's what he is continuing to do. 
Salvation impacting all the peoples of the world is at the very heart of who God is. And so, church, it must always be, must always remain at the very heart of who God's people are. When heaven meets earth, God's promises of salvation are alive for the whole world. But God's not finished speaking to Jacob. He continues his promises in verse 15 with a promise of his presence. And church, this is truth number three for us today. When heaven meets earth, God's presence guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. When heaven meets earth, God's promises, excuse me, God's presence guarantees the fulfillment of his promise. Notice what God says here. God not only renews the covenant promises, the promises of a deliverer, he promises Jacob his personal presence. Talk about a gift of grace. Verse 15, behold, God says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wow, what words of certainty. What beautiful words, what undeserved words. Once again, we see God's grace on display. Jacob, who in no way deserves for God to appear to him, no way deserves for God to speak words of salvation to him, is now told by God that God's going to be with him. God's going to keep him. God's going to bring him back. And God's not going to leave him until every bit of these promises are fulfilled. Church, this is a divine guarantee of divine promises. I don't know. The only, I mean, as I think about divine promises from God, the only thing I can think of that just to add kind of like a cherry on top to the divine promises of God is the divine guarantee that he's going to fulfill his promises. That's exactly what we have here. If God is with Jacob, there is no way that the promises will go unfulfilled. Now, listen, this is important. Just because God promises to be with Jacob doesn't mean that Jacob's life is easy. We're fixing to dive into trial after trial after trial in Jacob's life. But God was with him. And God kept him. And God never left him. Nor did he forsake him. He was with him through it all. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has given those who believe in Jesus the same guarantee. That his promises of salvation in our lives will, without question, be fulfilled. You see, God not only sent Jesus, the Son of God, to this earth. Heaven has met earth in another way. You see, right before Jesus left heaven, or left earth to go back to heaven... Which seemed like, oh no, we're done with heaven meeting earth. Jesus said, guess what? Heaven's not done meeting earth because I'm about to send someone else. And guess who it is? It's God as well. It's God the Holy Spirit. And and God the Holy Spirit is going to indwell, personally live within every person who believes in me. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen to Jesus' words to his disciples on the night of his arrest. So he's getting ready to be arrested, go to the cross, die, resurrect. And then a few weeks later, ascend back to his father. And he says this to his disciples. You were kind of wondering, what are we going to do when Jesus is gone? He said, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. So not everybody gets this. Okay. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Why was that? Because they believed in Jesus. 
Jesus went on to say in that passage, it's a long passage, but he goes on to say that this Holy Spirit is going to teach them and guide them and empower them to be his witnesses. And he's going to preserve them to the end. And the same is true for us. Listen, when the Apostle Paul was writing about salvation to the church at Ephesus, he described the security of salvation by pointing to this very presence of God in them. He said, do you want to know how you can rest assured that if you believe in Jesus for salvation, then heaven is your guaranteed home? It's because heaven is daily meeting earth inside of you. Because God is going to come and live in you through his spirit, and that's going to seal your salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. Paul writes, in him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that's that good news that we've been talking about, and you believed in him, so we must respond in belief. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Church, not only did heaven and earth meet for about 33 years during the life of Jesus here on this earth, heaven is meeting earth every single day through his Holy Spirit that lives inside of every single person who is trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? When heaven meets earth, God's presence guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. Church, how great is our God? How great is our God? Just makes you want to worship him, doesn't it? Well, guess what? That's exactly what we see Jacob doing in the rest of this passage. After God finishes speaking, Jacob wakes up and his response is this. Awestruck worship. Awestruck worship of God. Truth number four, when heaven meets earth, church, God's people respond with awestruck worship. What I mean by awestruck, we're just amazed and overwhelmed. We don't even know what to say or what to do. It leaves us speechless, kind of like that passage that I read earlier in our service where Paul says, what do I even say to these grand truths about who God is? They're unsearchable. They're inscrutable. It's beyond it's beyond human even ability to comprehend it all. I'm standing in awe of him. I'm awestruck. What do you do when you wake up for a dream? Maybe maybe you try to forget it. That's what I try to do. When you wake up, when I wake up from a dream, I just try to forget it. Like I have I just have weird dreams. They don't make any sense. And uh, especially when I eat ice cream before I go to bed. It's awful. I think I may have told you all that before. I can't eat ice cream before I go to bed. It's really sad. But I try to forget the dreams. I mean, I don't, want, I don't want to remember. They're just too weird. Some people try to write them down. I don't know. Maybe you've done that before. Maybe you want to remember it. And I think I've heard people say, if you want to remember it, you've got to write it down for it. I have never done that. One, I'm too asleep to pick up a pen and write it down, okay? I, I, it's, not, it's not that important to me. What do you do when you wake up from a dream? Maybe turn the light on. Maybe wake up somebody else. My dad told me that I used to dream that, it's embarrassing to say this, but I told somebody this just last night, um, that I used to dream that I had wolves in my closet. Like, like, oh, you know, wolves, like howling wolves, okay? That, that's, that's what I thought I had in my closet. And, um, and so what did I do? I'll, I'll wake, wake him up, wake, wake my parents up, wake him up. He said he had to come in there, tell me there's not wolves in my closet, you know, show me there's no wolves in your closet. I, 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 my, my response was waking him up so he could protect me. How does Jacob respond in this dream that he has? I mean, what do you, what do you do when you have a dream like this? What do you do when you wake up? 
Verse 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Listen, Jacob wakes up and he is in awe. He is awestruck. A reverent fear washes over Jacob. He's like, oh, no, I have been in the presence of God almighty. This is not something to take lightly. This is something that changes his life forever. But he doesn't just stand there dumbfounded. He doesn't just do nothing. His awe, his wonder at having been in the presence of God moves him to what I'm going to call worshipful action. Worshipful action. First, he turns his pillow into a pillar. He sets up the stone to serve as a monument. He pours oil on it as a symbol that this place is set apart as a place where God has been. It's going to be set apart forever as a place where God has been. Then, second, he gives this place a new name. He names it Bethel, which means house of God. So the stone and the name will serve as a reminder that heaven met earth here in this place. And then third, he promises to serve the Lord. He says, the Lord shall be my God. The Lord shall be my God. And the way he promises to serve the Lord is by giving a tenth of all he has back to God when he returns from his journey. He doesn't really have anything right now. He's like, God, if you're going to go with me and you're going to bless me, whatever happens, whatever I have, when I come back, you're going to get a tenth of it. In other words, his worship would be visible. People would be able to tell that the Lord was his God. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a secret thing. But people would know Jacob serves the Lord. Jacob serves the Lord. Church, how are we to respond when we experience heaven meeting earth? How should we respond to Jesus coming and dying for our sin, rising from the dead, promising everlasting life to all who believe in him, sealing us with his Holy Spirit? I mean, that's some good stuff right there. That's awesome. That's amazing. That should make us want to worship. How do we do that? I think the same way Jacob responded, awestruck worship that moves us to action. We ought to stand in awe of God. We ought to be overwhelmed by the holiness and majesty and grace and mercy of God. But that all ought to move us to visible displays of worship, not to make a name for ourselves, but just so that we are living for his glory. We live for him and serve him. Worship that makes it evident to those in our family, those in our community, those in our world that the Lord is our God. He is the one that we are bowing down to in humble obedience in day to day life. Now, Jacob here, his way was giving. He said, I'm going to give back to you. So I'm, I'm going to give to you this tenth of everything that I have. Now, there's never a command in the New Testament to the New Testament church to, to tithe specifically. It's never an amount given that we are to give in the New Testament. We don't see any evidence in the early church that giving a tenth of your income or your possessions was just, that's it. As long as you do that, you're good. God's, God's good with you. I can't dive deep into all the Bible says about giving. I'll have to save that for another time. But I will summarize the New Testament teaching because it is the way that that we have here. I mean, how did Jacob visibly express worship? It was by giving. And so how are we to give? If I can just give you three words, literally three words that there are at least a star in us understanding a, a kind of a biblical theology of giving. Like what, what does the Lord expect of me when it comes to giving? If we study the New Testament, you'll, you'll, you'll see these principles very clearly. I can take you to passages. I'm not going to do that right now, but you're going to see these. We are to give regularly 
We are to give sacrificially and we are to give cheerfully. There's more we could add to that list. There's more the Bible adds to that list. But we are one of the ways that we respond with visible worship is through giving. And the New Testament tells us and describes for us the early church giving regularly, sacrificially and cheerfully. Regularly, not sporadically, giving should be a part of our regular routine of worship. We're to give sacrificially. In other words, we're not to limit our giving by placing some sort of cap on it, which is often what happens when we talk about a tithe. We cap our giving at that. That's never the intention. Giving should always be sacrificial. Our example in worship is Jesus. How much did Jesus give? He gave all. That's our example, okay, where we are willing to Give sacrificially. The amount does not concern God as much as what the gift reveals about our heart. Are we making sacrifices for his kingdom? Whether that's with our money or with our time or with our talents. Would God describe our giving as generous and sacrificial and then cheerfully? We're to love giving to God. We're not to give begrudgingly. It's a a joyful act of worship as we see Christ hanging on the cross, having meeting earth for us. And we say that God is worthy of everything that I have. He's worthy of all that I am. And so I'm going to give sacrificially, but cheerfully, because the result of what God has done for me that's leading me to give to him is my eternal salvation. And there's nothing that can compare with that. But giving is just one tangible expression of worship. It's the one that we see here. But there are many more. Listen, church, as we stand in awe of God, we ought to express that worship by living in obedience to all of God's commands. By serving as an active part of the body of Christ, the church. We're to worship by lifting up our voices in songs of praise, by serving and helping those in need, by bearing one another's burdens, by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others, by continually growing in our knowledge of the goodness and love and holiness and majesty of God, by spending time in his word. We ought to we ought to be spending time with him in prayer. We worship him by producing the fruit of the spirit in our lives, by looking different than the world around us. We worship him by doing all we can to ensure that every person on this planet has an opportunity to hear about the amazing love that God has shown to the world by sending his only son, by allowing heaven to meet earth and bringing salvation. Listen, the ways to worship are numerous. The main thing to note here is that lives of worship are not optional for God's people. If we have experienced heaven meeting earth And if you trusted in Christ for salvation, you have experienced heaven meeting earth and you are daily experiencing that as you live rescued from your sin, not under the weight of your sin, covered by God's grace, walking in the spirit each and every day. Living in worship is not optional. Living in visible worship is not optional. Again, not worship where we're trying to make a name for ourselves. Hey, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. But worship that just declares to others God is my God and I'm living for him. No matter what anyone else says or does, I am living for him. Does your life say that, Christian? Does your life say that? Does my life say that? Awestruck worship. Friend, the most important news in all the world is that our greatest problem has been solved. It was solved when heaven met earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you received God's gift of grace? Have you received it? 
say, what does that mean? What does that? Have you believed that Jesus can do and has done what you never can do and what I never can do? Have you believed that Jesus left heaven and came to earth to die for your sin and my sin? And that it was enough to satisfy God's wrath? Have you believed in Jesus for salvation? That's how you receive God's gift of grace. And church, when we have, are we living in awestruck worship of him? Examine your life. Allow the Holy Spirit to to expose anything in your heart that's not an act of worship. Perhaps it's an act of idolatry. And ask the Lord to help you. I'm going to ask the Lord to help me. God, help me live in awestruck worship of you each and every day. Constantly being reminded of your grace and sending your son, heaven meeting earth. Church, when God bridges the gap between heaven and earth, he gives salvation and he receives all the glory. And so have you received salvation? Church, are we giving God all the glory? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy displayed on Calvary's cross. Thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your grace and allowing heaven to meet earth. Not just in a dream to a runaway sinner, but God in your Son, Jesus Christ, who left the glories of heaven to dwell here so that we who are separated from you forever could draw nearer and nearer to you. So that we could live in your presence forever and ever so that we could have you as our God, so we could know the glory of you. So we could experience the fulfillment and satisfaction that comes when we live the way that you created us to live for your glory. God, help us to respond to this passage in humble awestruck worship. Singing songs of praise to you because you're worthy of it. Going out, living our lives to make known the goodness of Jesus and the message of salvation. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.